Good morning, and welcome to episode 206 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh, uh, joined by Sam Miller. How was your weekend? Fine. How was yours? Pretty good. I went on a Star Trek The Next Generation binge. Um, mm-hmm. like cool. 11 cool. episodes. It was, it was Super pretty cool. great. Uh, okay, uh, so what do you want to talk about today? Um, hot streaks. Okay, and I want to talk about a couple different managers who are kind of under under scrutiny right now, and uh, and something that we had sort of planned to talk about in the email show last Friday, but didn't, which is whether we would ever recommend firing a manager knowing what we know. I believe that uh, you're contractually obligated to say hot seat <laughs> yes that is right one well only one is really on the hot seat the other one is kind of uh just drawing drawing fire for for one particular issue okay yeah why don't you why don't you start okay uh so the one of those two managers who is really on the hot seat apparently is don mattingly uh ken rosenthal wrote a story I think it was it was late Sunday night, uh, or yeah, at some point Sunday. Uh, who said? I'm. He says now I'm convinced that Mattingly is going to get fired, and the sooner it happens, the better. Uh, he seems to think that that Mattingly has this one series coming up. Uh, the the Dodgers have Kershaw and and Granke and and Rue starting against the the Brewers, and he thinks that if it doesn't go well for for the Dodgers, Mattingly will be out. Uh, just sort of based on on obviously how the team is playing and how it was expected to play, um, and just kind of Mattingly's comments and and just seeming to be frustrated and and a scout telling him that he's not the right guy for the job because he's laid back and and this team needs a guy with fire and and all that sort of thing. Also, uh, not he also he predates the uh, the new ownership group, so right. that. Uh-huh doesn't help yeah and and then the other uh guy who is not on the hot seat i would say but is kind of coming under fire just for his his bullpen usage i guess in the wake of johnny venters and eric o'flaherty's uh tommy john surgeries or or venters definitely tommy john surgery and o'flaherty's likely tommy john surgery uh rj anderson wrote something for bp that is up now uh on monday that you can read about um he, he talks a bit about how how much both of those pitchers were were used over the past few years and and it's kind of the the typical reaction to the the venters and O'Flaherty stories I've seen lately where uh, someone will post something about how their elbow is not right and then all the commenters will say Freddie Gonzalez is reaping what he sowed and this is what he gets for for using those guys so much um, and so I've been kind of thinking about whether we can really hold him responsible knowing what we know and and whether what he did was or how he used them was uh was irresponsible and so this uh was just kind of tied back to a question that we got last week from dane uh in kansas who asked does ned yost need to be fired the royals were off to a good start but have faltered lately this was six days ago uh, Kansas City seems to actually be trying to win this season, and I'm wondering if a new voice might help the team not drop out of contention. 
I understand that a manager probably does not affect that much in terms of wins and losses, but a move could signal a heightened sense of urgency. So you and I were both uh, responding to that and thinking about whether whether we would ever recommend that really anyone should get fired, not necessarily just Ned Yost, but uh, I, I think you said you had a relevant anecdote. So yeah, a couple of weeks ago uh, when Angels, well, the Angels, uh, I guess, blog blog community, the Halosphere, as they call it, is uh, is hotly debating the Mike Sosha uh, situation and wh- and whether he is or deserves to be on a hot seat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, at Halo's Heaven, somebody started uh, circulating a letter to, I think, Artie Moreno or maybe Jerry Depoto, probably Jerry Depoto, uh, that was sort of petitioning for Socha to be fired. And uh, so this person uh, sent it to me and asked if it was something I wanted to sign, and while that is not something that I would probably that, ever want to sign, that's definitely how how managers or how owners make their decisions about how to fire managers and to do it is because managers <laughs> circulated a, a petition. Yeah, you know what though, uh, obviously, haha, lol, etc. But also, um, I bet you that there are man, there are owners. <laughs> Who, at least, at least, it might have some. I could see it possibly having some effect, Mm -hmm. Uh, even if they they, consciously they would laugh at it and say, uh, "What a bunch of buffoons!" They, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you know, it seems like a lot of times we judge people, uh, and we judge especially, I think, famous people based on whether we sense that uh, that the the conventional wisdom is for or against them mm-hmm. and so if you just i mean if you start hearing bad news about a guy uh it does i think it does seep in even if you aren't intending it to but i mean obviously yes uh not not the way that normally these things happen mm-hmm. um not the way that uh billy martin for instance got fired in, in 1981 i don't think it was a group of yankees bloggers um but even if that were the sort of thing i was likely to sign um, that's the, uh, specifically with a manager is like the last thing that I would ever sign because, uh, I just, I, I mean, I, I just find it to be like the one, uh, you know, the one, maybe the one area of the game where we don't have, uh, anywhere near actionable information. We were, we are completely for the most part, for the most part, I would say incapable of, of evaluating a, a manager. And, um, you know, so I, I said, you know, no thanks. But, um, you know, I, I think that probably, you know, somewhere between two and 6% of a manager's job is visible to us. Mm-hmm. And to even to the most, uh, you know, even if you were the beat writer, I think two to 6% is a, is a fair amount. Um, so, uh, you know, it feels like a, a, a fairly arrogant thing to, to tell a, a GM or an owner uh, how to handle a personnel matter that, um, that he's, I mean, you know, the guy's job is essentially to, um, uh, you know, to, to do things that only man, uh, GMs and owners can see. Uh, so you have to, at some point, allow that those guys know more than, than, than we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would find it difficult in, in most circumstances to recommend that a manager get fired. I guess, I mean, the only, the only time that I can think of, and it's not with a, a guy who bunts too much or whatever. I mean, Mattingly's tactics probably leave something to be desired, but I don't know. I don't know how he 
interacts with his team. And, and Rosenthal even says that he seems to be a, a pretty popular guy. This isn't one of those situations where the manager has has lost the clubhouse and people are openly defying him. I, I think the only recent example where I felt like a guy just had to go is Bobby Valentine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Where that was just, I mean, I even even if he was doing things well behind the scenes that I couldn't see, and even if he was making fine tactical decisions, it was just day after day, the story of that team was Bobby Valentine and how he was not getting along with the team and how people didn't like him and how people were rebelling. And even if it was, even if some of it was exaggerated, it was just such a, such a distraction. Like, I don't think that if it ever gets to that point with a manager, then it's probably just more trouble than he is worth for the team to keep him around. Yeah, I have a hard time measuring the value of a the the value or the the negative value of a distraction exactly, but I do think that um, in in that case, and 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 another example would be um, Terry Collins when he was with the Angels mm-hmm. in the late '90s. The clubhouse pretty openly rebelled against him, and Move On, uh, as I have read since, kind of. Uh, like led a led a charge to get him removed, and in that case, I I think it it gets pretty close to being um, uh, something that we can judge because then you have people who do know being very candid. Very rarely do we get that sort of candidness mm-hmm. from people who are intimately involved, mm-hmm. um, and you know you still don't know you don't know you don't know what what Movon's like, and you know you don't know. Um, what I mean, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of things in these relationships that you don't know, but at least I would say in that case it gets from like two to six percent to like maybe thirty percent of what the manager is doing is is visible to us and and evaluate evaluatable by us. Um, so I would feel more confident in that case with um, Sosha and Mattingly though. Uh, in both cases, it, you you really I mean you know the people if you dig around you can find a, a scout to say something or you know. Maybe if you're if you're lucky, even a, a player to say something uh, on or off the record. But basically, what we're talking about is the team is underperforming by, you know, a 25 to 30 win pace, and so you figure, oh, the manager must not be doing well. But it's not as though the manager is in in anybody's opinion actually respond able to swing a team by 30 wins. Mm-hmm. So w- once you allow that those 30 wins are mostly not him. Then you have to start asking yourself if, if any of them are him. Um, I mean, what you're basically seeing is a thing that is outside the manager's control, and it's hard to know whether uh, even one of those wins is is tied to him, or maybe nine of them are. Who knows? It's really hard to say. But the the thirty or whatever, whatever they're underperforming by, is almost completely um, uh, bad information, uh, unhelpful data. I, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think the idea that like we'll give him one more series and see if he turns things around is just it's like either he's the right guy for the team or or he isn't. I mean, whether they lose the next three games or win the next three games or win two out of three of the next game, I mean that doesn't really change. I mean, how much new information does that give you about whether he's the guy that you? want for the rest of this season and the rest of uh, or, or coming seasons and he's Mattingly is in the last year of his deal but I, I mean there there always does seem to be that sort of idea that that like if a guy is off to a bad start or a team is and the manager is on the hot seat it's like well 
we'll give him another few days to to turn things around and i never i never understand that cuz well i think that dane dane basically makes makes the case for that when he says that you know it probably doesn't actually mean anything but it might create a sense of urgency which uh-huh. you're saying might create a psychological turning point and a, a three game sweep is also can be a psychological turning point i mean you figure the dodgers are going to play roughly like their true talent level going forward and if you start to see any indication that 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 is happening then you know you lose the uh you lose the incentive to create some sort of psychological turning point maybe it already happens maybe it's just you know a big walk-off victory i mean i i doubt that a big walk-off victory will is the turning point either i think to you know typical regression to the mean is the turning point but if it's just optics then you can find less um violent optics i think to go for mm-hmm. the, la- the last time i remember thinking a manager should be fired and and this was largely emotionally driven um was 2010 july of 2010 and it was bruce bochi and the giants were playing terribly <laughs> they were um uh-huh. in i think they were like I think they were under 500, and there was all the the Posey stuff. Posey was had been kind of uh, you know buried under Benji Molina to some degree, um, and was playing first base, wasn't playing enough, etc. And there was a game when um, the Giants were. I'm going to probably botch some of these details, but the Giants were in extra innings, and Posey like had a leadoff single or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, Bochi pinch ran for him with uh, with Eli Whiteside. Um, which was a weird choice. And Eli White, I mean, you know, it was like runner on first with two outs or something like that. And so the value of even a good pinch runner would have been small, but the value of Eli White side was minuscule. And uh, so then like two or three innings later, you know, the Giants get some runners on and there's like one out and a runner on third, the go ahead run or something like that. And up steps White side because Posey's out of the game. And I, I was just... I just couldn't believe that it happened. And it, it, you know, the Giants were doing so poorly. They hadn't really done anything under Bochi. And it just felt like the All Star break was coming up. And I really thought, like, they're going to fire him. This is it. They're going to fire him at the All Star break. He's not going to make it past the All Star break. And then there was um, basically, they had this big series against the Brewers. And, like, Posey had, like, a six RBI game and hit a couple home runs. And from that point on, they were just, like, on fire for the rest of the year. And, now Bochy's like a total managing legend. So, uh, you know, that was dumb of me. And uh, sure enough, there was a, you know, who knows? Maybe they were going to fire him. And maybe they, maybe, maybe he really managed the heck out of that next series against Milwaukee. <laughs> right. uh, or maybe just I was being dumb and Sabian had a lot better perspective on things than I did. But one way or the other has kind of worked out. Uh-huh. Uh, so you didn't think that about Valentine last season then? I yeah I just didn't care that much but yeah I mean but obviously like the thing about Valentine is you don't have to call for it I mean it was so obvious he was he was just absolutely a lame duck and they were, I mean they, if the Red Sox had been in any sort of position to make a move in the second half and like make the playoffs then I imagine they probably would have fired him a lot earlier but um, you know who who cares about Valentine <laughs> it's like it just didn't feel like it was even worth thinking about it was so obvious mm-hmm. so if there had been like some big movement to keep Valentine then I probably would have gotten agitated about it and said no he needs to go but I didn't think that much about it and Rosenthal says something uh he says I wrote last week about how a bad bullpen can create a bad manager uh, and he talks about how Sunday's game was another bad game for Brandon League uh and 
he has a quote from Mattingly who says, people clamor for one guy, then they clamor for the next guy, and then somebody else. You'd like to get the thing the way you want it to work and keep guys in roles so you don't get disarray. Uh, so I don't know whether a bad bullpen can create a bad manager, but I guess a bad bullpen can create the perception of a bad manager, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. It does seem like if you just kind of have a... And it was something Jim Leland talked about during the playoffs last year about how he likes to have a set closer because he doesn't get second-guessed because he has one guy who everyone knows will be out there in that situation and nobody says he shouldn't have been. And uh, it's different when you kind of have to mix and match. And, of course, we talked over the winter about how little we liked the Brandon League deal, uh, and it has so far turned out worse than even we expected, I think. Um, So I guess... If that is, I mean, maybe that's contributing to some perception of of Mattingly being inept, just that he doesn't have an established closer or hasn't had one. And I guess it's not his fault that that Brandon League is signed to that contract, unless it is, unless he said, let's give this guy three years and $22.5 million. I don't know. Yeah. uh, Of the 2 to 6% of the manager's performance that we see, I'm trying to think of like how that would break down. I would guess that like 30 to 40 percent of that, two to six percent, is is bullpen success. Bullpen, mm-hmm. I guess I want to say bullpen management, but that probably gives us too much credit. Just bullpen success, mm-hmm. and then probably uh, starting pitcher abuse would be like 25 to 30 percent, and then amount of bunting would probably be like 10 percent, and then general. Uh, general ticks would be maybe 10 percent. Lineup, I guess, is a little. May, yeah, like two percent of that, and then strong jaw is probably eight to twelve percent, <laughs> uh-huh. and then and then maybe a little bit of uh, colorful post game quotes. Yeah, slash, well, I mean, handling, uh, handling, team building experience, handling the media is is an important part of the job, and that's the part that we can see. It is, but I don't know that you can really necessarily judge it. I mean, as a guy who's nice to the media doing well, or as a guy who's strict with the media and keeps them in line doing well, I mean, it's really hard to know what. The, what the what the strategy is? I mean, there's probably about a billion different ways to work with the media and to work on the media. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, so do you have thoughts uh, then about Gonzalez's bullpen management? Like, is it just a reflex of well, he used these guys a lot and they got hurt, so we should blame him for their getting hurt, or is it just? I mean, I mean, over any particular period of time, there's always going to be one reliever or one bullpen that is used most heavily uh so should we always say that that the manager of that team is is abusive of that bullpen or did he take it to a point that is abusive i mean we have no idea whether these guys would would be hurt anyway what if they had been used less heavily uh maybe it's just something about their mechanics or i mean this is venter's second tommy john surgery um so, I, I mean, do you agree to any extent with that kind of reflexive blame of him, or are you completely agnostic about whether he deserves any? Um, I, I guess I don't. I mean, I, we don't have a great sense of why anybody gets hurt, but it, it, I guess I'm not as as uh, up to date on what we think hurts relievers as I am what we think hurts starters. It's not. It seems much less clear, and you know, relievers. Venters is a little bit of an exception, but for the most part, relievers 
you know, they basically have no value except to right. get I guess work to death for like the four months of their life right. that they're effective. You I mean, I would the case that I mean that's the smart thing destroy, to do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, if I but... if I had a good reliever, I would destroy him with glee. <laughs> it would be like I mean, it would it would be like a four year old roasting a, an ant with a with a microscope. <laughs> I would just torture him. <laughs> and maybe that would be good for the team. Not I guess not if no one wanted to come to the team and play for you because they know that you're going to do that, but. Uh, as far as magnifying the most... that, by the way, not right, not microscope magnifying. I don't think that relievers probably ever feel overworked. I mean, maybe in some in some sort in some cases they might, but for the most part, um, these are not guys who have like a ton of career in them. And I think that they're probably thrilled to be getting leveraged work. I mean, that's that's how you get your money in like the you know the four months that you actually are going to get paid is by you know, getting a reputation for being able to pitch a lot and pitch in high leverage. So I bet these guys were thrilled. Again, Venters maybe is a little bit of a yeah of a of an exception, which doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do necessarily. That they were thrilled about it because players often it seems like do sort of no, I'm just, silly. I'm just disputing things. the I'm just disputing the theory that people right, are going right. to come play for you. Uh-huh. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what do you think hot seat? is supposed to mean as a like it I, I know what it means but like why is the seat hot is it is <laughs> just, it a, he's not he can't he's not comfortable he, he can't sit comfortably on his seat because it's because it's it hot? might be it might be pulled out from under him what what why would a hot what is a hot seat have to do with being pulled out from under you like well, what even is a hot seat the only hot seat i could think of is if you went to like a wedding and it was a, a really hot day in the sun were roasting down on the seat mm-hmm. and you sat down on it and you went, yes. ooh, hot, right. hot seat. But that's not, I mean, these are, hot seat does not refer to people who are new and can't find comfort. It usually refers to somebody who's, who's been there and is, is uh, growing well, uncomfortable in his seat. It feels just, it feels very weird. Like, is it supposed to be, is the, it hot because it's supposed to be motivating them or is it hot because they're, who heated it? <laughs> I think it's just, an uncomfortable seat it could be a it could be a cold seat or it could be a slippery seat it's just a seat that you can't what, what, sit we in should look. okay ben, we should, should look at the origins it should, be, it should be a wobbly seat yeah like okay it should be wobbly like one of the, the legs is shorter than the others and a wobbly seat yeah it might tip over okay all right well we'll start that then don mattingly is on the wobbly seat there you go. I love it. I love it. I, it sounded so good just then. Okay. What's your topic? You told me. Uh, so actually, I was going to talk about this um, and then, well, okay. So I wanted to talk about hot streaks, hot streaks, not hot seats, hot mm-hmm. streaks. Um, because the kind of, as I understand it, the conventional stat head orthodoxy on hot streaks and, and cold streaks is that... Um, they're mostly not real, that they mostly are an illusion. Um, and if they are real, what realness there is in them is difficult to identify in the, in the mass of data that we have. And um, so I was going to talk about that. And then uh, lo and behold, tonight, Keith Law and Brandon McCarthy got in a little bit of a Twitter spat uh-huh. when Keith, uh, when Miguel Cabrera was intentionally walked to face Prince Fielder, Keith uh, ridiculed it. People said, hey, come on, Cabrera's locked in. And Keith said, no such thing. And Brandon McCarthy said something along the lines of, 
that's contrarianism just to be contrarian. And so then they went on for a while and then they made jokes about Olive Garden. Um, and so uh, this actually comes up because I was, um, when I was at the park a couple of days ago, I talked to a couple of players casually about this. And, you know, in my head, I've always thought that the one of the reasons not to use hot and cold streaks in your analysis, besides it, you know, being hard to identify, is that it feels to me like a, a, a kind of lazy, not, not even lazy, more like an arrogant sports writer thing to do where you're putting yourself into the player's brain and assuming that you know what's going on there. Like, like you're, you know, you're like saying, I know you, you know, I'm, I'm inside your head and I know what's going wrong. And I always think that it's bad form when uh, sports writers uh, presume to know what's going on in a player's head. And so I've kind of thought of it as being a, an anti-player thing to say. And yet the players who I talk to are like, oh, no, totally real. It's super duper real. Hot streaks are like the realest thing. Cold streaks are super real. <laughs> and um, like I asked Mark Trumbo, he said, you know, a lot of, a lot of times it's not real, but um, a lot of times it is. And I asked if, if you know, if he hits a ball hard, if he smokes a ball in the first inning, uh, let's say he's a, a 270 true hitter. Uh, and he smokes a ball in the first inning. What does he think his average is the next at bat? And, and he said, ah, it's a lot higher. I said, 320? He said, yeah, probably at least that, maybe higher. Hmm. Now, I'm assuming that's not true. I, I mean, I'm, uh, nothing against Mark because I he, he does seem to get hot and hit the ball well when he's going well. And, and, you know, there are lots of, there are mechanics for why you would think this would work, well, mm-hmm. why you would think players would, would, would bunch up good and bad. But the reason I brought it up is because the, um, there, there have been some studies recently, which the New York Times wrote up, uh, looking at the hot hand in sports. And lots of science in the past has looked at the hot hand and found nothing to it. That, that it, like for basketball players, if they make sh- you know five shots in a row, they're no more likely to make the sixth than anybody else. Uh, and that seems to have been basically true around all sports. And there's been some new research that has looked at um, more complicated data and, and, and broader data and found two interesting things. One of them is that, in fact, there does seem to be some evidence of hot hands, um, looking at basketball free throws, looking at bowl. Seem to be, uh, and- uh, What was the last thing you said? You cut out for a second, after the free throws? Volleyball players, Ah, and and also, and bowlers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there does seem to be uh, some evidence that hot, uh, the hot hand is real, that a player actually is better uh, after he's made the last shot, that there's something that carries over. And yet, this is the interesting part, there's actually an anti-hot hand uh, that comes out of this, where the player who is uh, presumably playing at a slightly higher level, having made his last shot, is actually less likely to make his next shot uh, if it's a field goal, if it's like a, you know, if it's a, not a free throw, but a uh-huh. field goal, because he psychologically is too confident and takes a more um, ambitious shot. And he's also more likely to get the ball from his teammates because they think he's hot. So in fact, it has a negative outcome for what seems to be a, per, perhaps a, an actually positive thing. How do you, and how did they tell that it exists then in that case? I mean, uh, well, the results. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm reading secondhand stuff. Right. Yeah, okay. But let's just assume. I just want to assume that 
these two things are both true. And let, I want to assume that, that it's true about baseball players, that baseball players are actually do go through periods of being, you know, slightly better and slightly worse, or maybe greatly better and greatly worse. And let's also assume that it doesn't show up in the statistics because there is some sort of, I mean, well, we know that it basically doesn't show up in the statistics. So it well, might. To cl- I mean, go ahead. To clarify, I, I mean, I, no one says that, or at least I don't think statistically you can say that there aren't periods where players are hot or locked in, right? I mean, I, I, I believe that there are such periods. It's just that the studies seem to say that they're not predictive. That. That right. A guy who That's has been hot is not any more likely to continue to be hot than than a guy who has been cold. But but right, that doesn't because, mean that he hasn't been hot or cold before. No, that it point. Do, it well it does if you mean hot and cold as actual things and not as clusters of events. Well, you you could be hot for for over a certain period of plate appearances and then still have it not be predictive of future plate appearances. Well, if you're if you consider them independent events that bunch up against each other, then there was no actual hotness. There was just clustering. If you consider it real, then that player was more likely to get a hit the next time. Yeah, I I believe that retrospectively, I think it's just looking forward. You can't say that a guy right. I mean, I I believe that that if a guy has you know hit 500 over his last whatever at bats that he was more likely to get hits during that period. I, I mean, I don't think it it's mutually exclusive, or I don't think it... I mean, you can say that and also say that, that a guy who has been hot lately is no more likely to continue to be hot, right? Well, you okay, can say so, both of those things. No, you can't, because let's say that... Okay, so Marco Scudero is, tw- say, 25 for his last 50, which I think is actually true. Uh, and you're saying that that's a real phenomenon, that Marco Scudero is hot, that he has actually been playing better, that um, that there's something in his brain or approach or mechanics or stance that have made him better. So now, yes, it could dissipate at any time. Right. So it might not have predictive value to you right now. However, by allowing his real hotness, you should have been able to go back to 10 plate appearances ago and say... He's hot. A certain number of players, if, if they're demonstrating a hotness ability, then the first 40 would have been slightly predictive for the next 10. Well, because obviously, not, I mean, not... If, if, you, if you could tell that he was in a, one of those periods where he was locked in, like if you, if you knew his, his mental state and you knew that his mechanics were you know, perfectly aligned or, or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that I can you, tell. That. No, but if you're if you're allowing that it's a real phenomenon, then you would simply regress. You would you would regress based on how likely it is to be a hot streak. How many of these hot streaks are uh-huh. um, are outside of the statistically predictable pattern, and you would just regress. So if you knew that uh, that of if you knew that over the course of a season that randomly fifteen people should have twenty five for thirty stretches, and in fact twenty five people have twenty five for fifty stretches, then you know that basically. A decent percentage of these are hot streaks, and then you would predict going forward that half of those guys, or you know, forty percent of those guys, are in a real, observed and 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 true state, right? Yeah. And you would just regress. You wouldn't you wouldn't say that it's a it's a it's a lock that he's going to be good, but you would say that there's like a lot. I mean, well, it depends how how real this is. I mean, players mm-hmm. would probably tell you that it's almost all real and that you shouldn't regress at all. Right? Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. 
No. Uh, I mean, we don't know. But the basically, the, it seems like when people have looked at this, they found that it's not that you basically ignore it, that it's not a good uh, indicator at all. And that, I mean, like Keith was saying, you just ignore it. It's it's garbage. It's it's uh, it's totally. I mean, Keith obviously, you know, Keith on Twitter, and uh, you know, when he's when he's dealing with these sorts of issues uh, in 140 characters, um, you you know how he is, <laughs> lovable, <Yes>. delightful, <laughs> uh, and so he, you know, he he basically boldly said, meaningless. Don't ignore it. Uh-huh. Don't pay any attention. So if that's true, then it would only be true because hot streaks are never real or virtually never real. Okay. Right? I mean, when look, obviously these clusters happen. The question is whether there was actually something at play or whether this is just... I mean, I'm sure uh, many of the clusters are just independent events that happened to cluster together. The guy was no more likely to get hits during that period than at any other period. But I do think your your true talent level changes somewhat throughout the season as you, I don't know, maybe you, you got a good night of sleep or you're just, you're at 100% health instead of 90% health or... I mean, I think there are there are factors that make you more likely to succeed on on any given day than on some other given day. Um, there are there are lots of reasons why this should be true, and so it should show up. There should be a correlation between one and bat and the next. That's mm-hmm. all. If it's real, there should be a, a demonstrated correlation between one and bat and the next. And I don't know if that's proven or not. I I would expect it to be, and yet I I read things that suggest it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, I guess the point is. One is I was going to ask if you uh, where you fall on this, and mm-hmm. I, I guess we both. Well, I guess you said where you fall. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I've said. Do you feel like I've said where I fall? Uh, you sort of said that you think it should be true, or you would have expected it to be true, but yeah, I I think I'm pretty agnostic about it, but I I think I probably think that it's more true than um than it's like the not true. it's like the the clubhouse chemistry divide. It's not actually worth 20 wins or whatever. It's not actually meaningless, probably. It's yeah. somewhere in there. And I guess it's probably closer to the nothing than to the it means a lot, but but it probably does mean something. Okay, so then the second question is, is there an equivalent to the anti-hot hand in baseball, do you think, uh, where, I mean, obviously you don't get more p- balls passed to you in baseball and mm-hmm. you don't, uh, you're probably not going to like get all greedy and swing from the on deck circle because you're so confident. Um, well, but do you? That's go ahead. Well, that was the possibility I was going to say that yeah. if you more if you're, yeah, if you're in one of those periods where a hitter will say that the ball looks like a beach ball or whatever, and he's seeing the ball so well uh, that maybe you would become overconfident and think that you could hit a pitch that you normally wouldn't try to hit and. And then you would make weak contact or miss it or something. Yeah, I would think that it would be either expanding the strike zone or um, perhaps swinging for a home run more, swinging kind of for a bigger outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. Trying to do too much, they might say. Or I guess if you're a if you're a pitcher, maybe you would challenge a hitter that you wouldn't normally challenge if you feel like you have your best fastball or something, uh, and mm-hmm. you would just kind of throw one over the middle and think you can get away with it and you can't actually get away with it. Yeah. You might lean too much on one pitch or you might, uh, you might throw your third best pitch too much thinking like you've got everything working when you actually don't. Yeah. 
Or maybe you do have everything working, but you should still go with your best pitch instead of your third best pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, So so it's possible that, in fact, uh, Brandon McCarthy and Keith Law are both correct. It's possible that, uh, in fact, um, a hot hitter is a better hitter, is more locked in. And it's also possible that he is self-sabotaging. And that's why it doesn't show up more in statistics. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. That's all. All right. Uh, we yelled. Us. We yelled at each other. This was pretty close to us yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah, that was more more conflict than than the typical episode. Uh, more conflict than the previous two hundred and five <laughs> combined. Yeah. Uh, okay. Email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com so we can t- talk about your emails in two days. Uh, we will be back with a new show on Tuesday.